I'm Janae Wilcox. And I'm Chris Henson. And welcome to the November edition of The, the Broker Breakdown. Breakdown. Hello, guys. And this month, we are going to be talking to you about the new employer overtime rules. That's right. We've got new rules that have finally been finalized by the Department of Labor. That's right. So these rules have kind of been in the pipeline for a while, but they finally finalized them. They're going to go into effect uh, January 2020. So the U.S. Department of Labor announced that it will publish these final overtime rules, which will update the earnings threshold necessary to exempt employees from the Fair Labor Standards Act, minimum wage and overtime pay requirements. Oh, these rules do take effect on January 1st. Um, but we are not experts, so we went out and got an expert for you guys. This month's Broker Breakdown is going to be in conjunction with none other than Fisher Phillips. Fisher Phillips is a national labor and employment law firm. With over 400 attorneys and 35 offices, the firm is committed to providing the highest level of client service for every matter. Their attorneys represent employers with issues that arise at the intersection of business and employment law, including labor relations, employment, civil rights, employee benefits, immigration, pay equity, non-competition, and workplace safety. They are dedicated to resolving issues that employers face every day. Visit fisherphillips.com for more information or to locate the office nearest you today. All right. Today we have Michelle Anderson of Fisher Phillips joining us today. Michelle, take a brief moment and introduce yourself and tell us about your time with Fisher Phillips. Great. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm a partner with Fisher Phillips. I am based in our New Orleans office, but I also am a partner with our Tampa office. I have been with Fisher Phillips since I graduated from law school 12 years ago. And all we do is work with businesses on matters of labor and employment. And actually, before I became an attorney, I actually had a prior career in workforce development for eight years. And part of that was in management. And so I have actually hired, fired, interviewed people, lived with all of these laws that I am now advising my clients on, on the other side as an attorney. And so I sort of have the best of both worlds that I have. I can tell you the law, but I also can explain to you the practical application for your business. That is fantastic. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on in so our listeners can get some of this fantastic insight you have. Can you tell us a little bit about what the changes are um, that have taken place with the new FLSA law? Sure. So finally, after lots of anticipation lots. <laughs> and, and some litigation and a lot of back and forth and comment, uh, the Department of Labor finally released the new overtime rule uh, at the end of September. And so what that does is it's going to change the salary basis threshold for white collar exemptions. So presently, of course, it's a three-part test to determine whether someone qualifies for, an, for a white-collar exemption. The first is that they have to be paid a weekly salary, uh, the same week in and week out, uh, less, of course, applicable or standard deductions, but for the most point, that salary is not going to fluctuate uh, based upon how many hours a person does or does not work. Then there is a salary number, presently 455, the new rule changes that to 684. And so that will go into effect January 1 of 2020. Now, the third part to the test, which is really the most important part, are the job duties. 
does the person fit within the particular classification based on the job duties? And a lot of employers assume that if you simply pay someone a salary that they are exempt from overtime, and that is not what the law says. So while the new rule changes the salary threshold from 455 to 684 a week, it does not change the third part of the test, which is do they meet the job duties for a particular classification? The other thing that it's going to change is for the highly compensated employee, which of course is another exemption. Presently, that's $100,000 annually, and that will rise to $107,432 annually come January 1, 2020. Okay, great, great. Now, this doesn't seem like that big of a jump. Are, are a large number of employees expected to be impacted by this? So it's interesting that you say that. So if you look back to 2016, when they had what we will call the overtime rule 1.0, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they tried to take it up to 913 a week, of course, there was a lot of backlash going from 455 to 913. There was litigation at the 11th hour. Absolutely. The law was enjoined after everybody <laughs> had spent all this time trying to figure out how does this apply to our businesses. So I will say that the, the 684 is is likely more palatable. Um, however, the Department of Labor estimates that between 1.2 and 1.3 million people will now start receiving overtime. And that was part of their press release when they released the new overtime rule. But the reality is whether people actually see that as overtime is a whole nother story. So I guess the Department of Labor has to make one assumption that, okay, we have a lot of people who are meeting the 455, but not are not going to meet the 684. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't know that that's necessarily accurate. Again, we have to assume that they're meeting the job duties test for exemption, right? That we've got all three parts of the test. But even 684, that's just over $35,000 a year. So that may not necessarily mean that people are not already meeting that threshold. Um, and certainly businesses are, are going to be looking at, okay, well, if I have someone right now that is at, say, you know, 600, you know, could I certainly bump them up that extra $84 a week because they do meet the job duties test for an exemption. So that doesn't mean if they bump them up to meet the 684, that doesn't mean they're going to be getting overtime because now they will just simply have raised their salary up. The other fallacy is if If, as part of this process, employers are determining that maybe they had misclassified somebody as exempt or they really can't afford to raise them to 684, they would meet the job duties test, but they can't afford to raise them to 684 a week, so then they would become hourly employees with um, opportunity for overtime if they exceed 40 hours in a work week. But that doesn't mean that employers are going to allow them to work over 40 hours in a week. So, again, while people might become eligible, depending on which scenario we're talking about, either a misclassification, uh, and so they're reclassified uh, as non-exempt for any, any of the reasons we discussed, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be working more than 40 hours and get that overtime. So I'm not really sure where the DOL came up with their number, but I I think it's not necessarily going to be accurate that people will actually see the overtime. They might not work the overtime. Gotcha. So when we're talking about that threshold and that dollar amount, um, 
do uh, do bonuses and um, different incentives factor into that? And does the time frame that they're paid out factor into that as well? So the the new rule will allow for up to 10% of that total compensation to be in the form of a bonus or an incentive that has to be paid at least on an annual basis or, or more frequently. So that would mean if if we're looking at somebody who is in that 684 a week threshold, then just over $3,500 a year could be uh, a part of a bonus or an incentive program. Uh, if you're talking about the highly compensated employee, then of course at $107,432, then that would be you know, closer to $11,000 um, as part of a bonus or incentive program. But if they don't, for whatever reason, their bonuses and incentives don't bring them up to that level within the year, then you would have to do a, basically a one-time adjustment to make sure that you get them up to the maximum compensation level for whichever exemption uh, that you're following. So, yes, it does give a 10% cushion, but you have to start asking yourself, well, does the math become much more complicated uh, when you're talking about a $35,000 a year employee? So, but yes, it, it does allow for that. Okay, great, great, great. And do the, after, um, you know, all this has taken effect, you know, what can companies do to ensure that they're compliant um, or they can start doing right now, I should say, to ensure that they're compliant um, before this rule takes effect? Absolutely. So what businesses need to be doing right now is to be looking at all of the people that they have presently classified as salaried exempt and first look at, okay, what exemption do we have them classified under? Are they administrative? Are they executive, professional? What, and there are others, but those are the common ones. And make sure that they actually meet that job duties test for exemption, because if they don't meet the job duties, it doesn't matter that you're paying them a salary, unless you're going to pay them $107,000 a year, and then they only have to meet one of the of the duties test. Uh, but I would say start with looking at your people who you are presently treating as salaried exempt and look to make sure that they fit the job duties classification. Then look, of course, at the salary. Are they presently below 684? Uh, if so, what do we need to do to bring them up to that level? Uh, and if you're looking at a, a class of people, so maybe you have new people that if you start bringing them in at 684 and all you do is bump up your longer term employees to 684, well, now we've got people making the same amount of money and we're not recognizing, you know, the length of time and position. So you have to be looking at, well, if we're going to bump all our entry for this to 684, mm -hmm. what do we do with these people who have been here longer? So you, you really need to start. It's, it's literally math. Uh, if it appears that you have people that you're going to be classifying as non-exempt, which means they could be eligible for overtime uh, come January 1, then you want to be figuring out, well, what is that hourly rate going to be? Um, we want to look at how many hours are people actually working? Are they working 40 hours a week? Do we just take that salary and divide it by 40 hours a week? Or are we looking at that they're working 50 or 60, which means we probably don't want to take the salary and divide it by um you know, the, that, those numbers, because then when you start talking about the overtime in the back end, then they're going to be making more than they're making right now. So a lot of times what I've done is we work with a you know, spreadsheet and we start doing formulas and calculations, trying to figure out 
what do we do with people if we need to put them to an hourly rate? What should that hourly rate be? And uh, there, and then there are other ways that you can pay people as well. So just because somebody is uh, a non-exempt person and might be eligible for overtime, there are ways that you can pay them a salary uh, called a fluctuating workweek method where they would get a weekly salary, but they're going to get overtime when they go over 40. The difference would be that they would get the halftime because the salary represents all the time that they're working. And then there's going to be a halftime calculation on the overtime. So we, we work with businesses to try and figure out what makes the most sense for your business, for your employees. But what I would say is you should not assume that what happened last time where there was an injunction in the 11th hour, you should not assume that that's going to happen again this time. It's not to say that there might not be litigation because there still is a school of thought that the Department of Labor doesn't even have the right to set a salary threshold. However, that's been done for so many years, I just don't know <laughs> that that's going to be a successful argument. But but I, I guess we just can't assume that we're going to get a reprieve in the 11th hour. And I, I know that particularly for larger businesses, this can take a lot of time and effort in addition to all the other things you have going on. So it's almost the end of October. Um, that just doesn't give us much time when you start factoring in the holidays. So I would say, you know, time is of the essence to start that process now uh, and, and to be working um, particularly with counsel uh, to make sure that the classifications are, are justifiable and uh, what do we do uh, to, uh, if we have to make a change, how do we message that to employees? Because one of the big changes is when you go from a salaried exempt person to non-exempt, the employer has an obligation to maintain timekeeping records and, of course, payroll records uh, for those non-exempt employees, whereas someone who is truly salaried exempt, you don't have to keep timekeeping records. So one of the hard things for a lot when people are converted from a, a, a exempt to a non-exempt is the tracking at the time. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to have mechanisms in place and start working with employees to get used to tracking their time awesome. and maintaining those time records. Cause that's a whole nother, you know, beast in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, piggybacking off of the statement you made about the questions about and the contention around the DOL making, you know, overtime uh, thresholds and so forth. Are there any state rules or laws that take precedence over this federal injunction, this federal law? Not not over the federal law. Okay. So states are permitted to do uh, things that would be either, I would say, more generous to the employee or more restrictive. So, for example, there are states that might say the 684 threshold is too low. We're going to have a threshold for employees in our state that's $900 a week. Or we're not going to do the same test for exemption for executive administrative professionals that the FLSA does. We're going to do something that's more restrictive. But but could you have a state that says, no, we're not going to do 684. We're going to do, we're going to keep it at 455. No, you couldn't do that. Okay. But so you, know, you sort of look at that the federal laws overlay and then the states can legislate, you know, within that to do something that is, again, more restrictive or more beneficial, you know, to the employees. Um, but they, they can't do something that would run completely contrary um, because then I think that you would have preemption of the federal, the federal law would preempt. And there aren't, there, like I said, there are a handful of states that do things that are more restrictive, um, but many of them defer you know, to the federal law, to the Fair Labor Standards Act. Okay. Okay. Great. So just a reminder to everyone, when does this, this when, I'm sorry, when does this new rule take effect 
and um, how does how do businesses reach out to you guys to start preparing for this? Sure. So the new rule takes effect January one of twenty twenty, and so certainly to reach out to Fisher Phillips, um, you can go to our website fisherphillips.com. Um, you can email me at m.anderson at fisherphillips.com. Uh, you can call our offices, but we, we have a number of resources on our website about this. Um, all of our attorneys are listed. Uh, so if you need someone in Louisiana, obviously we have a New Orleans office, but we have um, well over 30 offices around the country. We touch on pretty much every state. So uh, we, we can work with businesses, and I do frequently. I work with businesses that are um, outside of Louisiana. I, I do a lot of 50 state compliance work. So okay. we can help you uh, navigate. Uh, this, these, these issues and, and help you do it in a way that makes sense for your business and complies with the law. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for taking time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Janae and Michelle. A lot of great information included there that it's very beneficial to brokers and clients. Now, as you know, some employers have different benefit tiers for salaried and hourly workers or use exempt and non-exempt status to determine benefit eligibility and contribution levels. That previously acceptable setup could present challenges as some ch employees will exempt, who, are, who were exempt from overtime pay will be now reclassified as non-exempt, while others receive pay hikes to maintain their exempt status. Advise your clients to check if eligibility for any health or secondary benefits is conditioned on an employee's exempt or non-exempt status. A change in the population of eligible employees for any particular benefit could also affect its cost and effectiveness. By providing our broker partners with the background and applicable steps on topics like this, this is how NetChecks enables you to become a year-round resource for your client. Bring this topic and ask these questions to your clients to ensure they are up-to-date and compliant year-round. Thanks, Chris. We know this might be a lot to take in, so be sure to visit the Broker Breakdown landing page to download your copy of the FLSA Cheat Sheet and access our blog on the topic, which includes some best practices by the, from the Society of Human Resource Management. That landing page is netchecks.com slash broker dash breakdown. The Broker Breakdown is available on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you, and talk to you all next month. Bye-bye, guys. Bye, everyone.